Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's do a few minutes of energy. Exhibit C, all the way at the bottom, has inventory. This is inventory of crude and products in the U.S. And you can see this month about the same as June. And it's up in a significant way from June a year ago. Despite that, oh, and the top column, uh, Saudi is way down. Estimated that they're doing under nine and a half million barrels a day. So between Saudi and, and Abu Dhabi or UAE, there's a fair amount of oil on the sidelines. And Brent is $95. The only, if you look at demand, the only increases are places like China and other Asia. I think this oil rally may be overdone, but we'll see. Exhibit B, which is natural gas, I think the 350 gas forecast, which is for next year, is up from like 280 this year and six dollars and 22 and 370 and 21. I'm afraid that 350 forecast is more of a 25 event than a 24 event because gas production, which has been going up at the rate, if you look at the dry production. 91.3 and 21, 95.5 and 22, 101, estimate in 23, that's going up at about twice the rate that LNG is going up. So the difference between supply and demand or the storage change was a little bit down in 21, up to a B a day in 22, and 3.4 and 23. So you know, there's too much supply. Eventually, the LNG trains will make up for it, but you, they only come on at the rate of around 2 billion of gas per day, per year. You can see this illustrated when we turn the natural gas stocks, which is H12. These companies are trading based on 350 gas at least. The reason come to that conclusion is if you look at enterprise times free cash flow for these companies, it's 15, 16 times. If we go to page 11, for mostly all companies, they're at 10 or 11 times. So that, that five times multiple is about 50 cents of additional realization. It doesn't happen. These stocks, which are kind of appealing because if we did get 350 or $4 gas, there's definitely some upside here, but it could be that 
these prices will be somewhat lower if, if it's perceived that you've got to wait around till 25 for 350 gas rather than 24. Something we're going to get into in a second is almost all the companies in those 20 pages, 70 or 80 companies, have pretty good cash flow characteristics. There aren't too many companies here in, in the, these 20 pages that are overspending their cash flow. And that's good. That's especially good with high interest rates as dependent on debt financing. Uh, it's just good. But the question that we're going to address to Mike and Jason and myself is where can you find or where in this 20 pages or things that aren't the 20 pages and you find companies that are growing their free cash flow 10% a year in addition to not spending more in free cash flow. And when I look on page 11, EOG, Magnolia, Permian Resources, it's still a little unclear. They're kind of an amalgamation of companies. But Diamondback, those three companies, and you look at, they're all have, they're trading at 10 or 11 times free cash flow, which is the inverse of that is 9 or 10% yield. In terms of production increases, they're all somewhat higher, but not a lot higher. And without an increase in production, you can't just look to commodity prices to get you your 10% increase in free cash flow. So, you know, do any of these qualify? Not sure. When we go to page 10, which is the midstream companies, they're all kind of stuck. I mean, their free cash flow goes up 3 or 4% a year. Unlike the upstream companies, both gas and oil, they have a lot of debt and their cash flow after paying their distributions isn't enough to pay down their debt. So they're all kind of stuck. Now, some of them are trading at 17 times free cash flow, but that's that's basically they're pretty good companies. And because they distribute out a lot of their cash flow, they have pretty high dividend yields. I mean, Kinder is six and a half and Enterprise is seven and a half. So when we get to the majors, Exxon, Chevron, so forth, once again, they're trading at, you know, in that 10 or 11 times range, um, not much increase in free cash flow. I mean, these are large companies. Like, I mean, hard to, you know, I mean, you have a lot of large numbers where it's harder to do. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. So, I mean, covered energy once over lightly, looking for something that could have a 10% uh, free cash flow growth. I'd like to turn next to a page that updated last weekend, page 14. Now, 14 is some industrial companies, Caterpillar, Deer, dominant in their 
in their categories, Caterpillar and Construction Equipment, Deer and Farm Equipment, Generac, dominant in uh, home generators. Transdyn, kind of an obscure company, but makes thousands of parts that are approved by the FAA that go into airliners. And it's had a marvelous long-time record. And then Fastenal, again, kind of an obscure company, but has a couple thousand stores and, and also sites selling nuts and bolts and washers. Fastenal is what this kind of investing is all about. If you discovered it when it came public 30 years ago and you invested $9,000 for 1,000 shares, you now have $6 million of, of proceeds from dividends and stock market value. Now, 30 years is a long time, but $9,000 to $6 million is, is what we're all trying to do. Let's just look at Cat and Deer. I mean, these are superb companies. They're dominant in their sectors. They're trading in the well, Deer's at 12 times and Cat's at 17 times. Their debt's pretty manageable. Deer has more debt, so maybe that's the reason uh, Cat trades at a higher multiple. They're kind of cyclical, have some cyclicality in, in them, so their free cash flow growth is is a little jagged, but still very fine companies. With that, we go to the front of the book. The other page I updated over the weekend was what I think of as the NVIDIA page, page three. NVIDIA is just off the charts. I mean, at $40 billion of sales, $11 billion of free cash flow, it's trading at 100 times free cash flow. Now, here you don't worry about whether or not the free cash flow is going up because it's going to go up. Just a question of how, how far and how quickly. But what you worry about is at 100 times free cash flow. Advanced micro devices, which is a very, very fine chip company, but doesn't have the GPU that you need to do large language models, 40 times free cash flow. Intel kind of left for dead. Maybe they have a chance to do GPUs, but running negative free cash flow and you know maybe never catches up. Taiwan Semiconductor, which makes all the chips that NVIDIA designs, again, running a bit of a cash flow deficit because of very heavy CapEx. And then ASML Holding, which makes the equipment to enable Taiwan Semiconductor or anyone else to do lithography. Uh, again, 30 times free cash flow. They have a big backlog, but on the other hand, if you go and look at the business, you know, the, the, the amount of orders they add is less than their sales level and some exposure to China. I guess a question to, to Mike first or Mike and Jason together, if, if the objective is to have growth and free cash flow and you're okay with buying it at 100 times free cash flow, I guess NVIDIA would be one of the companies in the 70 or 80 on these 20 pages that you say is distinguished by being able to significantly increase its free cash flow. Just a question of the valuation. Do either of you have any comment or correction or anything on this string of logic that I've been laying out? Yeah. When we boil down the, the world, we try to lump 
what's happening kind of in a macro environment into themes. And the themes in the case of NVIDIA would be really software and artificial intelligence. And NVIDIA is a pick and shovel for that theme, right? So NVIDIA provides an enabling hardware and software that will support the transformation of the software industry from what it was to what we're going to see in the future that's a lot more artificial intelligence driven. It is maybe even surprising to us that it's becoming a winner-take-all sort of market. We don't think that's going to last forever. And that's where the tough part for the valuation of NVIDIA comes to, because we, we just don't know, and it's going to be hard to know until some of these downstream products start really generating revenue, how big this market for NVIDIA's products really is. Let me put it this way. You don't want to go buy AMD or Intel because they're cheaper, because <laughs> the products aren't comparable. And I, and I think that's, that's the exploitation that we kind of look for is, is does the business itself have a superior position that its competitors real, realistically aren't competitors in? And the same thing goes for ASML because I look around you, the number of chips in everything is continuing to expand at an exponential rate. When you boil down the manufacturers of lithography machines, ASML is really the only game in town. So I think that, you know, on a relative basis, you can see ASML at 30 times free cash flow. That seems like a very fair valuation considering their position. Now, what's the risk on ASML? Probably the biggest risk is more strict bans on exporting products to China. But uh, as far as long-term upside, it's hard to say where NVIDIA will go. But it seems like as long as ASML doesn't get blocked from selling to China altogether, then that's probably a higher probability, high compounder of capital. Would you agree with that, Jason? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I guess uh, for the what I would add to the first three companies is um, there's about 170 billion spent on data center capex every year, and what you see with AMD and Intel is is they they kind of been fighting over who gets the bigger slice of the pie in CPUs, and Nvidia is playing a different game, and and they make the chips that you know, as Hunt said, power the language models and AI. And they're taking a bigger overall share of data center capex spend. So all those hyperscalers are, are, are looking at cutting CPU spend, adding to their GPUs, and then giving a bigger piece of that pie to NVIDIA, whereas AMD and Intel are fighting over us ever decreasing size of that, of that pool. And then compare Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor. Intel is going to compete with that Taiwan Semiconductor in a market in which the only customer that's willing to pay more to Intel than Taiwan Semiconductor is the U.S. federal government. It's not really a position I would want to be in. They could get to be highly competitive, but it seems seems like that's not a great strategy. If you were Azure, Microsoft, or Amazon, and you wanted a second source for GPUs, where could you develop that? If I was Microsoft, I would do an in-house project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd yeah. probably acquire a chip designer of some sort and uh, and bring it in-house. Maybe some of the AI-related chip companies. There's a bunch of startups. You could probably justify making that acquisition and 
use your in-house software expertise to build the ecosystem around it and build something that's somewhat competitive with Google's Tensor chips and software packages. And you'd probably get Taiwan Semiconductor to build them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How it's- much capacity do you think Taiwan Semiconductor has to do or nanometer or whatever the leading edge is? Are they, are they pretty much sold out, do you think? Yeah, I, my understanding is they will, they'll build as much capacity as people are willing to foot the bill for. Because those, those initial nodes cost so much money that they require very heavy commitments from their customers in order to de-risk the investment for themselves. The whole market has benefited from Apple wanting to stay on the leading edge. If Apple made a design decision that said, yeah, we'll wait around until the next round of capacity, I actually don't even think that would work just because the volume that they require is so large that they're sort of in this force to purchase the leading edge stuff. And I, I think it's a win-win for the whole industry in general. And ASML, I guess, has the benefit. You know, ASML, it, it's, it's actually easy to look at the the leading edge and say, well, this is the sexiest, coolest part of lithography. But the reality is DUV generates most of the profits. So even though that that one machine, you know, the high NA EUV machine is 300 or $350 million, the, the bread and butter are DUV machines going to fabs that are producing chips seven nanometers and lower. Right, and they'll, they sell hundreds of those machines a year, whereas... These high NA EUV machines, it's they're trying to get to like a dozen. Oh yeah, I mean it's definitely single digits this year and probably next year too. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. Let's continue on this theme where we look for growth. The largest company by market cap is Apple, but Apple is you know say thirty times free cash flow basically is not growing very much. I suppose if we all decided that we needed the iPhone 15, that that might change. But if you had to if you had to do a 50-50 calculation, I'm gonna propose something and then you guys can explain how it's too simple or too naive. I think that Apple short of something that goes well beyond the capability of the latest iPhone, iPhone 15, I think they'll do well to hang in there with free cash flow in the 90, 100 billion range. I just don't see how they do too much more than that. So an investment in Apple to get to where you can double your free cash flow in five years if the prospect wrap over the next five years is somewhere in the 90 to 100 billion range, you'd have to get there by buying in shares with your free cash flow. I mean, they pay a $15 billion dividend with 90 billion of free cash flow. And on an annualized basis, they're buying in about 90 billion of, of shares. Jason, do you see that any differently or or what would what would cause that kind of downbeat assessment of Apple to be too conservative? No, 
I kind of have a, a downbeat assessment as well. If you look at the price of the iPhones, they haven't raised them the last two cycles, yet the technology that they keep putting in them is advancing. And we've had, you know, eight, nine percent inflation through that time. So what happens to their margins and their operating costs to produce all these phones? I'll be really curious to see what the numbers on the iPhone 15 look like. I I have a slightly different perspective because now that Apple has, well, they are growing in share versus Android. And I think it's more important for them to grow in share versus Android, especially at the low end in emerging markets, because it's not just the phone. Once you're in the Apple ecosystem, you're, of course, buying from the App Store, but you're also buying maybe an iPad, maybe AirPods, maybe. So there's all these other ways they can make money. I, I think going forward, you'll see a wider divergence between the low-end phone and the high-end phone as far as what people have as far as options go. Because people are willing to pay for the latest, most expensive one. But it, it may be more beneficial to grow users. It's kind of a shift from a product company to a services company, really, at the end of the day. Right. And that's, and that's, you know, what they've said. Yeah. I think another thing is, is a lot of their China business is at risk right now. Um, there's, I guess, I don't know if there's no outright ban on Apple products in China, obviously, but there's discussion that that might occur and that, and China represents such a big percentage of their business. Uh, Alphabet has their, Google has their trial going, which represents a risk. But again, I'll, I'll try first. I think the chance of Google taking their free cash flow from the 50 billion range to 100 is also a little remote. Maybe they get halfway there, but again, 30 times free cash flow, 3% yield, in order to get to a 15% return, you'd have to You'd have to double your free cash flow in five years. I happy Alphabet stockholder, but I don't see that as being terribly likely. Mike, you're next. We'll save Tesla for Jason. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Mainly because based on what we know today, because search hasn't actually changed in spite of large language models. Google seems to be innovating there. It's probably going to cost them quite a bit of money to continue that level of innovation. I think that mainly is being done to protect their golden goose of search. The biggest risk I see to them is, I guess, being broken up. There's no good way to break up Google. So I, I think it's a remote possibility, but that would be the biggest risk. So is 30 times free cash flow great? I mean, ideally, you'd be doubling cash flow over that period at 30 times free cash flow. It does seem like it'd be hard to do that without a major change. Google Cloud has been pretty consistently unprofitable. Maybe this AI transition kind of gets them over the line. They can steal some customers. But again, I think that's less likely than they would like for you to think. What do you think, Jason? I don't know the numbers behind YouTube, but I would think that'd be a, a fantastic business if, if it was separated out. Yes, they do separate out some of those numbers, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, they, 
I almost exclusively watch YouTube now, so I'm, I've completely switched off of cable and regular broadcast TV. Yeah, it sounds like they're winning the over-the-top cable market, and if anyone's winning the writer's strike, it's YouTube. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So really, Jason, Jason, you're rooting for the Justice Department lovers, <laughs> hoping, hoping for a spin-out here. I didn't think of it that way, but uh, maybe I am. <laughs> well, if they do, we'll be buying the the YouTube piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tesla, well, this one's for Jason. I'm going to propose, I mean, with $8 billion of free cash flow, 100 times free cash flow, I have a lot more confidence that the $8 billion is going to go to at least 16 in the next five years than... Well, I mean, NVIDIA, maybe, maybe it's same confidence that their free cash flow is going to double in the next five years. But I really think Tesla will. Why? Well, they're just so far ahead. And not just the, the strike that Ford and GM and Stellantis have to cope with, but they seem to be getting further ahead because they don't have dealers and they want to keep their rates up, their rate of production up. So their strategy seems to be to drop their price, and it could be very difficult to compete with if you're trying to go from being a you know gasoline and diesel powered car manufacturer to an electric. But Jason, uh, would you share like confidence that in five years' time the free cash flow will double from the eight, nine, ten range up to the eighteen, nineteen, twenty range? No, absolutely. Yeah. For, for what the reasons you said, and then maybe because they don't have a unionized labor force, they iterate on their assembly lines. Whenever a new innovation is ready to put in the assembly line, it goes in. So there's, you know, I guess they sell them by model line, model years, but within a given year, the, the model of the car may change. So, you know, they've already designed their, their assembly lines in a more modernized way. And then they're further iterating on that at a pace that, you know, the, the big three can't keep up with since they're only allowed to change, you know, the, the operations at any one, one, you know, station in a, in a line once a year. Yeah. But from a competitive strategy perspective, it's classic disruption. And now they are the low cost producer used to be producing an EV was more expensive than a gas car. Well, today, they're getting to the point where it is as cheap as a Toyota Corolla. I think in, in California, it is, you know, when you factor in the state rebates mm-hmm. that, you know, the state rebates and the federal rebates and the Tesla price cut, it's one of the cheaper cars you can buy now. The fascinating thing to me is uh, Clayton Christian's Innovator's Dilemma. I think the last chapter he talked about, and this is well before EVs, talked about how EVs would be a good example of a disruptive product that would eventually kind of supersede the the existing incumbents. And uh, it's sort of played out pretty darn close to the way that he predicted it. So maybe maybe Musk read Innovator's Dilemma and said, hey, there's a good business <laughs> idea. <laughs> I'm sure he did read it. Yeah, yeah. I wish they would uh, offer more colors in their cars because the, the amount of Teslas you see driving around California, it's... Uh, they all look the same. Yeah, I mean, that is the <laughs> downside to this is you're going to see, it'll be like the iPhone, right? Everybody's going to have the same car, or, you know, of five or six models, so. 
Uh, that wraps it up for uh, this week, for the next few weeks through the end of the year. That's going to be our challenge. And so that's what we'll work on in the coming weeks. Take care, everyone. Be well and stay healthy. Talk next week. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.